if you don't like dog cavalry, I just, I can't help you. I really can't help you. All the Warhammer, half the calories. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone, and I will be your host today. Today, we're going to do something that I've wanted to do since, well, we started this show, and that is I'm going to do a review of Kings of War, a very uh, not Warhammer kind of game, but something that is of interest to Warhammer players as a great way to experience a different rule set with the same miniatures, and honestly, just a really fun game that I should talk about. Before we do that, I think we should have a little bit of a chat. You may have noticed if you are a regular listener that the release schedule has been a little erratic lately. And part of that is because I've been in school on work term and then working. So it's not quite as easy as it was in the midst of the pandemic for me to get these episodes out. The other thing is that after 80 some odd episodes, it's just become a little bit harder as well. The ideas don't always come as easily as they used to. And frankly, I've talked a lot of Warhammer on this show. I think part of my issue is that in my current position as a podcast producer, I work on podcasts all day. That is what I do. I spend several hours today editing a podcast and then I'm going to have to spend an hour or two editing this podcast, and it kind of drains a bit of the enthusiasm out of podcast making, which is a little bit unfortunate in a way. I'm in a job that I really enjoy, that is really engaging, but it makes doing this hobby and my own podcasting pursuits just a little bit more challenging. So after doing my work term, and then subsequently working at this company, I think that a change is in order. And I, I thought about it last week. Last week, I didn't have a ton of time. I could have gotten something out for you, and I wish that I had, but for whatever reason, I just sat down and I didn't have anything in me. There was no podcast in me last week, which is the first time I think that's happened for this show. And so I think we're going to be doing some changes going forward. And that, unfortunately, means less episodes. And I know that I've said this before. If you were listening last summer, I was going to move to a bi-weekly episode release schedule when I went back to school. That didn't happen because, well, I was still really motivated to make episodes, and I just miss this podcast when I'm not doing it. But this time, I think we are going to have to make some lasting changes. The first thing that we're going to do is we are going to wrap up the Patreon this month. This is June 2022 for anyone listening from the future. And the Patreon has been wonderful. It has been an incredible experience. It has taught me so much. And people have been so supportive of this silly little show. And part of me feels like I'm letting them down in some way by doing this. 
but I would be letting them down more by continuing to keep open a Patreon that I just don't have the time or the energy to give the attention it deserves. So that's kind of a hard decision that had to be made. And for anyone who has been a Patreon, is on the Patreon, it always surpassed my wildest dreams. I thought there was ever going to be like two or three people on there. And one of them would have been me with like a mustache. (laughs) But we had a very, very healthy Patreon. And it's so wonderful to see that kind of support. If you're on the Patreon, I want to give you the most thanks that I can. And it's, it's been so good. The Patreon's been a huge part of this show, keeping my enthusiasm up for doing this show. And honestly, this show is a big reason, I think, that I ended up getting the job that I'm in now. So I really can't overstate the importance. That being said, I really can't fulfill the obligations that I set myself for the Patreon. And since I'm in a paying position at this point, I think that whatever future that this show has is one that I can foot the bill for. And that way I feel less guilt about missing a week like I did last week if no one is paying me to do this. So... Thank you so much again if you were on the Patreon. It's going to continue until the end of June, and I will cancel that before anyone gets billed for July. And I'm also going to try and get out the Rat Ogre episode that I promised for the Patreon before we end up taking that down. And if, by some unfortunate circumstance, I can't get that out, it will come out on the main feed with a special thanks to the patrons. After this week, the podcast is going to be moving to a when-I-can-do-it schedule. I kind of hate that in a way because I really like a fixed schedule for it. It's still going to come out on Tuesdays. It's just not going to be every Tuesday. It may be bi-weekly some weeks. It may still be weekly some weeks. It's going to depend on the time I have, what GJ's up to, all those kind of things. So please don't be concerned when the episodes don't always show up on your feeds every Tuesday. I think a weekly schedule for a show like this was always something that might have been unsustainable in the long run, but we did it for about two years, maybe a little less than two years, and we got a ton of episodes out of it, and that is worth a lot to me. And the podcast isn't going away, it's just going to be less frequent. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news for that, but it's just a decision that I have to make at this point, because otherwise I'm going to come to resent it and it'll end up withering on the vine, and one of these days it'll just stop completely and you'll be like, what happened to that guy? Did he get hit by a bus or something? And I'll be like, no, no, he just grew to hate his own podcast, and I'm really not trying to do that, so I think this is the best schedule. Now, let's put all of that news aside, and let's dive into something a little bit different on today's podcast. I haven't done a lot of reviews on this show. It's something that I kind of leave for other people, other more knowledgeable people, I want to say, because when it comes right down to it, I'm not very good at war games. And 
For anyone who's listened to this show since its inception, or for more than, like, say, three episodes, you'll probably have a real clear understanding of what I mean by that. I'm just, I'm not very good at them. But I love them. I enjoy them. You know, I'm that kid out playing sports who's just got two left feet and is cross-eyed, right? Like, he's doing his best, but, you know, it's just not going so well for him. That's me with war games. One of the true joys, I think, in wargaming is when you discover a new war game that you really like, because it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. So I started with Warhammer, moved to 40k, really stayed in the GW ecosystem for a long, long time because it was so big and I was so in love with the settings. But once you start to branch out into maybe a different scale or a different genre of wargame, it kind of brings back those good memories of when you first started, say, Warhammer Fantasy, right? You, you have this blank slate. And I think as a hobbyist, having a blank slate is one of the most exciting things that you can have because the possibilities are endless. You could do anything with that. Now, of course, you won't do anything with that. You'll probably do like one or two things. Or if you get really into a game, maybe you end up with like 11 armies or something. But there's always that time at the beginning when you first encounter a new game that it's all so exciting and fun and fresh. And I really like that. And the reason why I'm doing this episode is not because I've been playing a lot of Kings of War, which I, I really haven't. It's actually because I've been playing a more one-page rules, which is another game system that I want to do a review on. And maybe that'll be the next episode after this one will be a review of the one-page fantasy. But I wanted to start this one with Kings of War because it was my first step outside of the GW ecosystem. And it's a game that has a lot of value. It's really good. And I really want to share that. Now, this isn't going to be the review where I tell you what's good, what's not good, how balanced a certain thing or rule is. This is going to be more of a feeling kind of thing. I'm more of a touchy-feely kind of guy when it comes to that. You know, some people look at hard data and they make their decisions based on that. And idiots like me just go with their gut and say, oh, yeah, this feels good. So that's the kind of review this is going to be. And I apologize in advance if you are the kind of data-driven person who is going to be driven crazy by this. So one of the things that's going to make you feel old, and I'm going to try not to do that. I try not to do that on the podcast because then I feel old too. But Kings of War dates back to 2009. Can you believe that? That's wild. They've had three editions of the game. It started off actually as a miniature line for Mantic Miniatures before it became a game itself. And it always kind of had that, oh, hey, this is not Warhammer, right? So we have the mildly Tolkien-esque fantasy background. You have armies that are basic approximations of everything that you would find in Warhammer Fantasy, although that has changed at this point. And you have what came to be kind of the discount Warhammer fantasy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes discount stuff is just as good as the name brand stuff, and it's half the price. <laughs> That's kind of what Mantic was going for here. Kings of War 3rd Edition came out in October 2019. And if you remember 
October 2019. There was also a, another announcement, I feel like, on the same day that Mantic released Kings of War 3.0. I'm trying to remember what that was. Oh boy, something about an old game setting coming back. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Some kind of old, like, world or something. Uh, probably not important. When Kings of War 3.0 launched, they looked at their their second edition rules, kind of tidied them up, did the new edition thing, right? Where you streamline some stuff, you add some stuff, you take off some stuff. I'm not going to talk about the older editions because I never played the older editions of Kings of War, and I'd just be making stuff up. Like, for example, did you know they used a D100 for all roles in Kings of War 2nd Edition? Bet you didn't. So I got the starter set for Kings of War 3 when it launched. And Kings of War is a neat game in that they offer you multiple starter sets. And the starter sets kind of rotate as the edition gets older. So I got the the very first one for 3.0, which was the Northern Alliance versus the Night Stalkers. Now, I will be going over the various races in this game after we look at the rules, but basically think of nightmare creatures versus a loose alliance of races that live in the northern part of the Mantic setting. Along with a ton of miniatures, it of course came with a handy-dandy rulebook. So we'll be going through that, and I'm just going to kind of explain... From the perspective of someone who comes from Warhammer, the mechanics on a basic level, as well as how the game feels to someone used to a different style of fantasy battles. And hopefully that will be of value to some of you guys who may have only seen Kings of War from afar. So the rulebook itself is pretty bare bones. And by that, I mean it doesn't give us a lot in the way of lore or fluff or any of that more mushy stuff that I love, which is a bit unfortunate. But the lore behind Kings of War is, whilst not generic fantasy, it's not ultra deep either. That being said, there are some novels set in the kings of war universe which is pretty cool and it does have a lot of neat ideas and, and I'll, I'll touch on them when we talk about the armies a little bit so contents wise there's the rules which you might expect in a rule book game scenarios and there's 10 scenarios included in this basic rule book and then there is the army list and there are 14 army lists provided in this book and there is a subsequent book that came out called Uncharted Empires, which gave you even more armies. And every now and then, Mantic likes to do kind of an annual. I guess it's once a year. And those will also add rules and armies and that kind of thing. Kings of War has a much bigger roster than Warhammer Fantasy ever did as far as sheer number of factions goes. If you have any Warhammer army, you're going to find an approximation in Kings of War, and then you will find stuff that doesn't have a Warhammer approximation either. So really the world is your oyster with Kings of War as in terms of fantasy combat, as long as that oyster that you want is big blocks of troops. 
There is a skirmish variant of, of Kings of War, uh, but we won't get into that today. So first up, they have a nice little getting started section, which if you've ever played a war game before, you'll probably figure it out. It tells you what dice are and how to measure things. But then it gets into something that is a little bit more unique about Kings of War, and that is units. And yeah, that doesn't sound unique, but it, it is because Kings of War does not deal with individual models on their own. Kings of War is only interested in units. So if I have a high elf archer, for example, from my Warhammer collection, can't really just plink him down, right? And you couldn't in Warhammer either. You'd have to take them in minimum unit sizes. But Kings of War never has you remove models. You only remove units. And this abstraction is nice in a couple of ways. Firstly, you can keep everything on its movement tray and you don't have to worry about picking up individual models as they're slain. And that's kind of nice. It also makes moving armies around quicker, easier. So there's a lot of good stuff like that. Uh, you don't have to worry about changing formation mid-battle. You don't do that in uh, Kings of War. The downsides are, of course, that this is an abstraction. So if you hit a unit really hard, say you got your shock cavalry and you just run into a big old unit of something, you don't get that, that visceral appeal of picking up 20 models out of a 40-man unit and being like, yeah, I killed those. It just doesn't happen like that. You kind of put on what are essentially wound markers onto the unit until the unit gets removed. So there is kind of a dialing back of how interactive the game is on a model-by-model -model level, but it does mean that you can play faster in a lot of ways. So the units in Kings of War are infantry, heavy infantry, cavalry, chariots, large infantry, monsters infantry, swarms, large cavalries, war engines, monsters, titans, and heroes. And in the units section, they will give you a breakdown of what each type of unit is and then kind of subcategories of that unit. So we'll only look at one here, and that is infantry. So for example, infantry, if you were to buy a troop of infantry, that consists of 10 models arranged five models wide in two ranks. And each infantry model has a 20 millimeter square base. If you want a regiment, that is 20 models arranged five models wide in four ranks. A horde is 40 models arranged 10 models wide in four ranks. And legions consist of 60 models arranged 10 models wide in six ranks. You can get some ludicrous battle sizes in Kings of War. You think Warhammer Fantasy 8th Edition had big model counts, Kings of War can pretty easily exceed that. If you're the type of player who really likes the big showpiece battles, right, where you have legitimate hordes of goblins and uh, big units of trolls and just making your battles look like real battles instead of kind of company-sized conflicts, this is a game that can accommodate those sizes. So the breakdowns here are for every unit type, and they'll tell you what the base sizes are, what the unit sizes are, and how to put them on the battlefield. The next section is unit footprints. So this is also very important. Because Kings of War only functions on a unit-by-unit, not model-by-model -model basis, 
the unit footprint, that is the total space taken up by your unit, is very, very important because it, it's uniform, right? So five goblin wolf riders, in this case would be like a troop of goblin wolf riders, they're always going to take up the same amount of space. What this means is if you're ever looking to play Kings of War on the super duper cheap, you could actually just print off like stickers to put on cardboard, right? And you could play the whole game 2D. And some people do that. Uh, if you're not interested in the miniature aspect of the hobby, you just like the war game, right? You just want to play it like kind of a big board game. You can do that. I don't know why you would. That sounds awful to me, but I am not that demographic. And I'm guessing neither are you. And there's a couple of ways that you can make Kings of War armies really unique by using this footprint method. And the big one is multi-basing. So this is where your whole unit is on one big base that is the full footprint of that unit. And what you can do with this is you can have a lot of fun. So some people make whole dioramas on their bases, right? And where Kings of Wars and Ministers agnostic game, you can kind of just do what you want, right? So some people have full-on dioramas. Some people use it as an, as an excuse to save money, where they will buy less models but put them on the same size base, so they will do, say, only 15 models instead of 20 for a regiment that would normally hold 20, but since it's on the same base, it doesn't really matter. That is a bit controversial in the Kings of War community, however, and there are preferred model counts, which is to have at least 75% of the models you should have in the unit, in that unit. That avoids people just putting, like, three guys on a base and calling it a unit of 20, which also looks very weird. Kings of War spends a lot of time and paper showing you how arcs work, how your units move, how they maneuver, because Kings of War, much like Warhammer as its predecessor, is a game primarily about movement, getting those flank charges, getting those rear charges, and the game rewards you very well for getting in a flank or getting in a rear. And so the very kind of first thing that it shows you is that movement, that maneuvering, how units function on the tabletop. And honestly, coming from Warhammer Fantasy, you're going to get a lot of this stuff. It's, it's very accessible if you are coming from that Warhammer ecosystem. And I'm sure that's not... A mistake that they've done that. So the stats of a unit in Kings of War are very, very different. They share nothing in common with Warhammer. A lot to this point is very recognizable as having its roots in Warhammer. The stats are very different because, again, everything is abstracted. You're playing with these units, right? Instead of playing with models. So you'll see things like an overall melee value which is the score needed by the unit to hit in melee. So that kind of thing is almost Age of Sigmar-esque, right? Where you have a basic like, oh, I hit on a four. We're not comparing weapon skills like we would in Warhammer. You also have a defense, the score the enemy requires to damage the unit. So the defense is kind of like your toughness and your armor save rolled into one. Another important one, and then arguably the most important stat in the game is something called nerve. So this is your leadership 
but it's also kind of your, your health as well. It's a combination of the unit's size and its training and discipline. This stat shows how resistant it is to damage suffered, both physical damage to its warriors, but also to its morale. And when your nerve finally breaks, that is when your unit is removed from the table, either having been wiped out or having been routed. But the result is basically the same. The unit ceases to function as a coherent force. So that's what you're trying to do is break your opponent's nerve when you're playing this game. So now we get into the turn sequence. And it's very simple. There is a movement phase, a ranged phase, and a melee phase. The movement phase is, again, it's a rank and flank game, the most important, and mastering it is going to win you more games. But it's also pretty easy to grasp. You have movement orders that you give to your units one at a time. You have a halt, which is just, hey, hang out here. You have change facing, which allows you to pivot around the center of the unit to face any direction. You have advance which is your normal kind of movement. So if you have a speed of six, you can move forward six inches, for example. So that's very Warhammery. You can also make a single pivot from the center up to 90 degrees from its original facing. So that gives you a little bit of flexibility for moving those units. You can back up if you've gone too far, which is half of your movement or half of your speed. You can sidestep to the left or the right at up to half speed. You can at the double, which is the old march move, although you must advance straight forward. And you can charge, which has its own section because charging is the most important. One of the nice things about Kings of War is that you can move through friendly units. You just can't stop within them because that would be really weird. You always have to stay one inches away from enemy units except when charging, disengaging, or during a pivot. And disengaging is basically a safe way to break off a combat. So this is one thing that Warhammer never really had. And it's kind of interesting. I still haven't really mastered all the things that you can do with it. Kings of War players are much more cognizant, I think, of, of the, the power of the movement phase of Kings of War than I am. But basically, it allows you to kind of break off a combat. Charging works a lot like it does in Warhammer Fantasy. And much like 6th edition and earlier, you double your movement or your speed in this case uh, to charge. I'm not going to go through the whole charge phase. It, there's a lot here written on charging because it is so vital. But it's, it is several, several pages of things. And we're just giving you kind of the flyover <laughs> review of this book. We've got terrain next. Terrain is done pretty simply. It's kind of, there's open terrain, which is just, you know, there's no rules around it. You just, you move through it. It's whatever. There's blocking terrain, which may shock you, but it certainly will block you. <laughs> And there is difficult terrain, which makes your life a little bit more difficult. There's also obstacles that you can cross over. Hills, which add to your unit's height. Height is a stat in this game, and it allows you to either see over or not see over intervening units, intervening terrain, that kind of thing. 
which is a nice kind of thing to have and something that Warhammer always kind of skirted around by saying like, oh, get down and see if your model can see this. Kings of War is just like, no, 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 we made a stat for that and you will be able to see over certain things and not see over certain things based on the height stat and not just based on pure true line of sight, as Games Workshop would say. I like the way that they do terrain in this game. I think it's it's pretty easy. It's pretty clear. And that's one thing that I've always had an issue with in Warhammer is that terrain often is a little nebulous, depending on what edition you're playing. So next up is the ranged phase. So the ranged phase is, is pretty easy. For the most part, it's pick a target in line of sight, roll to hit, and roll to damage. Of course, you'll have a pool of dice that is your attack dice for the whole unit. And then you will roll those dice once to hit and once again to damage. The ranged phase is one of those ones in Kings of War that armies either they participate in and, and it doesn't make a ton of difference. You know, it just it does a little bit of damage here or there before they get stuck in. Uh, and then there's armies that really can specialize in, in bringing a lot of pain in the ranged phase. It seems to have been more a problem in second edition, having those those big shooting armies that could just shoot you off the table. As far as I've experienced, the range phase is useful, but not something that you want to rely on to win your battles, which is probably what Mantic was going for here, because let's be fair, you kind of want to get stuck in, right? If you're going to play a rank and flank combat game. There is, of course, rules for cover and for big targets. Then we're in to melee. Melee works a whole lot like shooting. And the reason for that is that only the unit whose turn it is fights in melee. There is no back and forth there. And that's just the way the game is set up. So getting those charges is very important. But you also have to remember that if you don't route the enemy, if you don't break their nerve or waver them, which is kind of half breaking them they're going to hit you as hard as they can as hard as an undamaged unit in the next turn so it's not quite as bad as warhammer where if you got the charge off you could wipe out the unit or you kill the whole front rank and then they're not striking back and then maybe you strike it first next turn anyway and and so on and so forth you can certainly break things in the first round in kings of war but if you don't chances are they're going to hit you back at what is basically full health. So some, some differences and, and a little bit of extra thought required for your charges in this game, I think. After combat, we get into nerve. Nerve is really the crux of winning and losing a Kings of War game. Of course, most scenarios have objectives as well, but if you can't keep your models on the table, you can't capture objectives. So what happens is after you have suffered damage, either from shooting or melee or both, you will take a nerve test on your unit. There's two numbers with your nerve stat. The first one is your wavering nerve, and the second is the routing nerve. So to test the nerve of an enemy unit, you roll 2d6 and add the damage currently on the unit to the score. So damage basically is wounds. Think of it in Warhammer Fantasy. And if the total is equal to or higher than the unit's routing limit, the unit suffers a route. And a route is, it's gone. It's done, it's off, it's dead, or it's fleeing. 
if the total is lower than the routing unit but equal or, or higher than the wavering limit, the unit suffers a wavering result. So wavering is pretty devastating. It's not as bad as being dead, but it's not too far off. The unit does not route but is severely shaken during its next turn. Place a suitable counter on the unit as a reminder. In its next movement phase, it can only be given one of the following orders. Halt, change facing, or back. In addition, the unit is disordered, so it will not be able to use its ranged attacks in the next ranged phase. The unit will remain wavering until the end of its following turn when the wavering counter is removed. In my experience with this game, something that gets wavered usually doesn't make it past like the next turn. Uh, because it's very, very close to routing at that point, and the things you can do with it are so limited that generally those units just don't last. Now, one thing before we get off of Nerve that is both, I, I like it, but it's also very controversial, is things called exceptional morale results. So if you're rolling to test Nerve and a double sixes show, then you have suffered, we are doomed. If you roll a double six when testing nerve and the enemy unit is not routed, it will still suffer from the result of wavering as insidious news of defeat starts to spread through the ranks. So certain units, maybe you only did one damage to them and their nerve is something like 16, 18. Well, normally you can't do anything to that unit, but on the double six, uh-oh, they're wavered right away and that might leave them in a very bad place. Alternatively, there is the double one. Hold your ground. If you roll snake eyes double one when testing nerve, the enemy unit is filled with implacable resolve and will always be steady and fight on regardless of any modifier. Note if the enemy unit has suffered enough damage, this may still result in it being devastated. Devastated is if the amount of damage on a unit exceeds its routing limit, but the unit has not suffered a route result. The unit is said to be devastated and those devastated units half their attacks, unit strength, and suffer additional negative modifiers. Basically, double one gives you that against all odds, oh my god, they're holding out. The double six is just a, uh-oh, you know, Ted died in the back rank. We gotta, we gotta rethink this whole battle. And of course, there are fearless troops in this game, and they will just have a route value instead of a wavering value and that is they they can never be wavered they just fight until they're dead i really like these rules i think it adds a fun little sense of randomness to this game this game does i want to say suffer a little bit from being very mathy which means you can usually work out how much stuff you need to throw at a unit to break it or to waver it and it's it's one of its strengths and one of its weaknesses, because it's not quite as swingy as Warhammer is, which makes it a game more suitable for tournaments and for figuring out who's actually good at something. At the same time, it lends itself to less of those incredible moments that Warhammer does when something goes terribly right or terribly wrong. So these exceptional morale results kind of add that back in, and I really like them for that. I know they're a little bit controversial in the community some people love them some people hate them but they are what they are after nerve comes war engines which describes all of the nasty things you can do with war engines uh spoiler alert 
war engines really bad in melee in this game. Uh, units triple their attacks against them, so, uh, so it's not great. And then finally we get into individuals. And the way that individuals work is a little weird in Kings of War because Kings of War is such a unit-focused game, but you can still have the odd wizard or hero running around outside of a unit. And basically they work like little units themselves, but they do also have some extra rules, something like yielding, which means that one wizard or one hero can't hold up a whole unit of like 60 goblins. And that's really necessary for a game that works on this scale. After individuals, you get into special rules. I like the way they do special rules here. It's all universal special rules. All of the rules that you will see in armies are in the special rules section. And uh, that's kind of the way it should be. I, I don't know why Games Workshop abandoned universal special rules at some point because they're just so much easier to remember. Oh, hey, this unit's got this. Oh, I, I have a unit that has that too. I know what that is. Rather than 60 different names for a rule like Deep Strike for 40k, for example. After that, we get into picking a force. It kind of tells you how to do the points thing, how army selection works, which is really interesting. It forces you to take basic regiments and hordes. And why it does this is, well, because Kings of War is a rank and flank game, they don't want to just loading up on, on weird stuff. And basically, when you take a regiment or a horde, you can also include one of the following type of unit, a hero, a monster, a titan, a war engine. And that's nice because it forces you to have those big blocks of basic warriors, that kind of thing that really makes a battle look cinematic and means that you, you can't just spam the really good stuff. At least that's the idea. I don't know how balanced it is in practice, but it seemed to work really well in the games that I played. And it gets into army composition, so the amount of duplicate units that you can have uh, goes up the higher your games go. For example, in a 0 to 1500 point game, you can have one duplicate unit. By the time you get to 2000 points, that goes up to three. Kings of War also features theme lists, which I really like. These lists are often combinations of other existing lists with different, well, themes to them. So, for example, there's the elven Sylvankin, which are basically the wood elves of the Kings of War setting. And so they take things from the elf list as well as from the forces of nature list and they combine them together to make an approximation of the Warhammer Fantasy Wood Elves. So you got tree spirits plus elves. And there's a whole bunch of themed lists like that to, to give you some options. When we get into magic is where I start to have a few issues with the game. It works on a common magic item list. So a little bit like 5th edition or 4th edition Warhammer Fantasy where... Kind of every magic item was in one book and you just kind of pick them. And unlike those, there aren't any specific magic items for your armies. It's, it's all this generic item list. The problem that I have with this is firstly, you just get so many of the same items. So the, the better items, the more practical items, you see them 
if not in every game, every other game. And there's definitely things that you can do, but it's also kind of weird to have a magic item that affects a whole unit, but you kind of get used to it. So something like the Brew of Sharpness, for example. The unit has a plus one to hit modifier with melee attacks. Really good. It's 35 or 45 points, depending on how big your unit is. But you see stuff like that all the time, or the Brew of Strength that gains, gives a unit crushing strength, which is a universal special rule. I just kind of wish that each army had its own magic item list, or at least had like a magic item list in addition to what is here, just to give it a little bit more variety. Now, they may have added more magic items since this book came out in one of the annuals. I don't know. I don't have those. But I can tell you, however, that the spells I have the same issue with because, again, everyone has the same spell list. And there are some unique spells, so it's not quite as bad as the magic items. But again, there's just there's just not much here. There really isn't. There's, you know, you get your classic fireballs, uh, drain life, icy breath. You can imagine what a lot of these do. <laughs> there's a really interesting spell called Surge, which some armies like Undead... Anything that shambles. So there's a lot of units with the shambling special rule that basically means they are very slow. They can't really march around or anything like that. Kind of like classic undead. But this one is for basically you have a number of dice that you'll roll for the spell. And for each hit, the target friendly shambling unit moves straight forward a full inch. And so you can use that to kind of throw those units upfield unexpectedly or, or do some movement shenanigans with that. So there's definitely some really cool spells that work on the game mechanics. I just wish there was more of them. But again, this is a game that is de was designed to be more balanced, more tournament-friendly than something like Warhammer was. Warhammer, they would think of a thing and say, oh, that's cool, put that in a book. Kings of War is designed with more intent than that. Which may be a strength for you, or maybe a weakness. Uh, after magic items and magic magic uh, you get game scenarios there are 10 of them in all and i haven't played them all i will tell you but there's a lot of kind of neat they're they're not big any of these scenarios right it's usually just a, a paragraph and a half kind of telling you how to put down any objective markers and telling you kind of what they're worth for the most part i find them good at switching up how you play and and how you have to think. There's nothing here that is specifically killing the opponent. The closest thing might be something like dominate, where you're both trying to get into the center of the board within 12 inches, and you're trying to push the enemy units out of it, which is pretty cool, honestly. But most of them are objective-based in some way. Sometimes the objective counters, you get more of them as the game goes on, and sometimes you have less of them as the game goes on. And often you will score points at uh, the end of a turn as well. So I, I think they're really well designed. And again, they're, they're meant to be balanced. They're meant to be tournamenty. So you're not going to have those classic like Warhammer scenarios that were very asymmetrical because they were trying to tell a story. This is about playing a game. All right, that is going to do it for the main rules. Hopefully that's a decent little overview to give you an idea of how the game works. Again, again, this is a very kind of overhead view of everything. 
because I don't want to do a 10 part series on how Kings of War works. That's I'm not the best person to be doing that. I just kind of wanted to share my thoughts. But let's talk before we wrap up about the various factions, because you can get excited. Well, maybe some people can get excited about rules. I don't get (laughs) very excited about rules. I get very excited when I see models and hear about their lore and that kind of thing. So we're just going to go over the rulebook factions. Keep in mind that there are more, and I'll, I'll mention those ones after we uh, we get through. So the first faction is a human faction called the Basileans. They are a hyper-religious human faction that is kind of your feudal. Closest thing that I can think of is Bretonia, but what if Bretonia was about serving angels instead of serving the lady of the lake so these replace your grail knights with paladins holy paladins you have actual angels uh as as units uh, and as well as like leader units and stuff so they are a, a neat faction do a lot in the way of kind of your medium infantry heavy cavalry and that religious theming in your units I think my favorite unit is the Ogre Palace Guard. They're really neat. Uh, basically, in this game, some ogres are, are part of this, this Basilean nation. And uh, think ogres in giant plate mail with, with huge uh, halberds and, and double-handed weapons. They just look really, really cool. Definitely my favorite unit out of them. I think the angels look nice, too. There is the dwarfs. Now, these dwarfs are a bit different from the Warhammer Fantasy dwarfs, and Warhammer Fantasy borrowed a lot from Tolkien as far as their elves and the dwarves went. And one of the things that Warhammer Fantasy borrowed was kind of the whole, like, dying elder races thing. That's not necessarily how Kings of War do. Uh, The dwarfs in Kings of War are super imperialistic. They have a, a large empire, and they're very martial they're very authoritarian Uh, they're kind of bad guys honestly Uh, but they're also very ordered they get stuff done Uh, they really do the dwarfs here are are interesting they've got your classic dwarfy things like uh multi-barreled cannons various crazy war machines uh handgun infantry everything that you know and love about warhammer fantasy dwarfs you'll find here except that they do have cavalry as well. Uh, they ride things called brocks, which are kind of like badgers, I want to say. They're, they're odd little things. And uh, so it does give them some cavalry, gives them a little bit more movement, which is nice. They can also take things like earth elementals that uh, make for a different look for your dwarves in Warhammer Fantasy. My issue with the dwarves in this game is nothing to do with the list, nothing to do with the lore, both of those things I really like. In fact, there's even kind of a rebel faction of dwarfs that you can play as, too, that have kind of broken away from the main dwarf empire. My issue is uh, the models, unfortunately. The dwarf line is easily one of the oldest for Mantic. I think it came out probably around that, that 2009 point and uh, really shows. Mantic has come leaps and bounds in their miniature design over the years. And some of the more modern dwarfs that they've released are, are quite good, but the basic infantry is, uh, is really showing its age at this point. And you, you know me, how, how much I love older models. These, these ones, not so much. But the, uh, yeah, the dwarfs, really cool here. If you want to play dwarfs with a few more options in Warhammer Fantasy, 
they're a good one, but maybe use the models from Warhammer Fantasy or another uh, company. Uh, one of the other things I'd point out is that they have Mastiff hunting packs that are kind of the dwarf swarms here. So it's a, a dwarf with his uh, with his Mastiffs going out. And yeah, I really like those. And then we have the elves. So the elves are, again, one of the older factions. And because of this, their basic infantry and units, not so hot, unfortunately. They're very spindly, very thin. They just look a little weird. Now, I know Mantic has brought out some of their units in more modern times. They've got uh, basically what are dragon riders, but like they call them dracon riders, and they're a little bit small for dragons. I think they might be baby dragons or something, but uh, there's a, a fresh unit of those out, and I, I think a hero as well who looks pretty good. So again, this is the kind of thing that you can either sub in your own Warhammer miniatures for, or if you want to build a new army, I mean, there's plenty of miniature manufacturers that do basic elf infantry that, uh, that you could, you could look for. They've got everything that you kind of want if you are making high elves in Kings of War. So they have the, the archers, the sea guard, bolt throwers. One of the neat things here is that your basic elf faction has a treeman called tree herders so you can get that kind of wood elf feel even if you're not going with the sylvan elves although the sylvan elves will give you a much more wood elfy feel uh so these guys are great as your your not high elves of kings of war and uh they can do a little bit of everything they got those good quality archers but they also can uh, they can they can hit you with the the treeman They've got battle cats as their swarm. Most armies have a swarm of some type, and I, I like that. I like thinking of, well, okay, well, what would an elf have in a swarm, right? So you always think of swarms usually as like scaven rat swarms or lizard men jungle swarms, undead, like, you know, beetles or, or spiders or whatever, bats. And uh, so I think it's fun when they give dwarves like these these dogs. I always think of them as like kind of bulldogs. I think that would be what a dwarf would like. I know they say mastiffs, but I'm more on the uh, the bulldogs. And these are battle cats for the elves, which, again, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I should mention, too, that each army does have its own special characters. Uh, it usually has a few of them, and they will very rarely have their own kind of special rules as well that, that are outside of the uh, universal special rules. So they can do interesting things for your army. And then we have the Northern Alliance. So the Northern Alliance is a really kind of neat idea. So it, unsurprisingly, uh, in the north of the setting, there is a uh, coalition force of humans, elves, naiads, who are kind of watery water spirits, and uh, trolls, just all sorts of stuff. Uh, half elves, dwarves, there's like the Northern Alliance kind of takes in everybody. And because of that, they have a really kind of neat, diverse unit profile. They have all sorts of kind of neat things from the, the ice naiads who are good ranged units. You get snow trolls. If you want a big burly beasts, you can do the, the classic, like not quite uh, think chaos marauders but with actual clothes on you can do that for, for the human clansmen it's it's a fun looking army and there's there's a lot of neat stuff the 
big thing is uh, the Frost Giant, which is their their Titan, as well as they have, uh, I believe, a Chimera that, uh, yeah, a, a Lord can ride on a Chimera. So there's a lot of really cool stuff. It's also one of the new ranges, just came out in 2019. And so those models look really, really good. Then you have another coalition force in the Forces of Nature. So these are all of the Earth spirits, basically. So you have tree spirits, you have Earth spirits, water spirits, fire spirits. So a lot of their infantry is made up of these elemental creatures. So you have the naiads coming back, but these are like the regular naiads, like the the sea and river naiads as opposed to the ice naiads. And you have salamanders. Salamanders in this are the lizardmen equivalent, but they are also creatures of fire. So they've, they're kind of tied in with the element of fire. So they will also serve the forces of nature. The forces of nature in the lore here are just trying to kind of maintain a balance between good and evil uh, because Panathor, the world that Mantic has set this game on, uh, is tends to to kind of swing wildly between one side and the other. You have the angels on one side and the like the Basileans and those guys. And uh, they tend to actually cause as much problems as the uh, forces of the abyss, which is hell, basically, uh, which has kind of cracked open a large portion of the earth and, and demons and stuff spill out of that on occasion. So you have this push and pull between the two and the forces of nature are just trying to settle everybody down and get them all to get off their lawn. Uh, they were actually, I think, my favorite of the the forces. Also very, very diverse in terms of how each unit looks because you have, yeah, these lizard men, kind of salamander dudes next to the water spirit naiads who look very elven. You have the treemen and uh, kind of the smaller treemen. You have all sorts of kind of neat elementals, so like just pure elementals of water, fire, earth, that kind of thing. What's great in a miniature agnostic game like this is that Mantic can make something like the Beast of Nature, right? It's just called Beast of Nature. So you just go out and get yourself a Beast of Nature. Do you know what a Beast of Nature is? No, you, you don't. It's, it's whatever you want it to be. Is it something big and it looks kind of natural? You could get like an owl bear model from D&D. You could get uh, like a great eagle from Warhammer. And it's super customizable, right? So you can upgrade it with wings. You can increase its attack. You can give it a ranged attack. So maybe it's something that breathes fire or smoke or whatever. And yeah, so you can really make a build-your-own-monster out of this thing. And that's so cool. I I wish that was in more systems. So I am a, a big fan of the forces of nature. Uh, next up is ogres. And uh, I, you know them, you love them, they're ogres. They're not ultra different in Kings of War, except, of course, they don't have the GW aesthetic, so they're not big, fat guys. They are just big, burly. They kind of look like if orcs were half again taller and instead of green, they were kind of like a, like a ruddy, reddish skin tone. And uh, they're... Definitely a little bit more organized, I think, in Kings of War from a lore perspective than they are in Warhammer Fantasy. They also use goblins as kind of their servants, so a lot like the Noblars of Warhammer Fantasy. They've got some cool stuff. My favorite might be the Siege Breakers. They are ogres with giant shields, and they're just like a real tough unit to crack. I think they're, they're really neat. A lot of these units I like just for their look 
honestly, the way Mantic designed them. Also a nice cheap army. My favorite thing about the Ogres, though, is their army special upgrade. Every army gets an army special upgrade, and some of them are great. So the uh, one for the Ogres is the Crocodog. And there's actually a little illustration of it here, and he looks like such a, such a good boy. Uh, he does look like he might kill you, but he is basically a crocodile mixed with a dog, and I like that very much. The uh, Forces of Nature also have a good one, which I neglected to mention while I was going through them. And uh, that is the Frenzied Otter, which is really great. And each of these upgrades just does a little thing. So, for example, the Crocodog, once per game when the unit rolls to hit in melee, you may choose to reroll up to three dice that score a natural unmodified one. And it's a, a once per game use. So, yeah, these little army upgrades, they don't do much, but they have fun names. And it's just, you just think of them like throwing this Crocodile Dog or Frenzied Otter on the enemy. The other force that I really, really like is the Trident Realm of Nertica. So this is kind of the natural army for those naiads. Those naiads pop up in a lot of armies, but this is kind of their natural state. So this is all the things that live under the sea, uh, where everything's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. There's some really cool stuff here. There's kind of these frogs called tree leapers. They're river guard. They're really neat. Placoderms. Um, all sorts of, of beasts from below. This is a really good army to do if you ever wanted to do something very Cthulian, you know, like deep ones and uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, tentacle monsters from the deep. You can kind of do that with this army, which I really, really like. Next up is Abyssal Dwarfs. They're Chaos Dwarfs. Just entirely. They're just Chaos Dwarfs. They uh, have all the Chaos Dwarf stuff, the big hats. They have Orc Slaves. They are very, very Chaos Dwarfs. <laughs> I wish I could say that they're much more. They do have some, some interesting stuff, like they can take gargoyles, which are kind of like harpies from Warhammer Fantasy. They have things called Abyssal Grotesques, which are kind of monstrous infantry-sized models that are kind of, think Chaos Spawn type of thing. The, uh, the Abyssal Dwarfs are a big antagonist in this game. They actually ended up accidentally creating the Ratkin, who are the Skaven approximation in this game. Uh, they were creating a slave race, and it, it sort of went wrong for them. But only sort of, because they, they still keep a bunch of them as slaves. They have a freshly updated model line that looks really, really good. Then there is the Empire of Dust, who are not your granddaddy's Tomb Kings. Actually, they're, they're very much like that. Except they'd make mummies units again, which is something that I've always wanted for Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, these guys have approximations for pretty much everything in the Tomb Kings line. One of the nice things that I like about this army is it gives you reason to use Ushabti for the first time in forever as their enslaved guardians slash enslaved guardian archers, which hopefully are much better than they are in Warhammer Fantasy. Then we get into Forces of the Abyss. This is Chaos Demons by any other name. And for this one, we have kind of a neat way of putting this army together where you don't really have that kind of for God theme that you do in fantasy. So, for example, you have Lower Abyssals, which could be any of your three Bloodletters, Plague Bearers, Horrors of Zinch. And then you have the succubi, who are very definitely the daemonettes. It means that if you're porting your minis over, you've kind of got less options. 
but at the same time, it's it's a little easier to keep track of. Honestly, they're they're about what you think that they are. There's a couple of new things here, like the Molochs, who are a monstrous infantry. They're like kind of giant pot-bellied devil guys, and they don't really have much of an approximation in Warhammer Fantasy. You could use stuff like Blood Crushers, though, to uh, to proxy them. Or things like flame bearers, who are big units of ranged demons that you could use something like flamers for, but you're unlikely to have 20 flamers lying around. I mean, if you do have 20 flamers lying around, what were you doing with all those flamers? But actually, tell me, I, I do want to know what you were doing with all those flamers. Yeah, this army is, uh, is a, a good approximation. They're also kind of on the older side, but they don't suffer as hard as the elves and the dwarves do as far as... Uh, you know, models go there. There's some pretty good stuff there. And then everybody's favorite goblins. So goblins are separated from orcs. They're on a trial separation. And because of that, you either have armies of orcs or armies of goblins. And this is the goblin army. Uh, you can feel just too many goblins in this game. Just, just so many, just fill the whole board up with goblins and they have points left over for more goblins. Easily. I think my favorite part of the goblin army is their their war engines. They have something called a maw pup launcher. So this is kind of along the same lines as the squig gobba in Warhammer Fantasy, except that it's a goblin with a mortar, and he puts what are basically furry squigs in it and uh, just just lobs them at the enemy, and then they come down and they are all bitey. And uh, yeah, so it's pretty funny. My other thing that I like from this army is the winget. And this is a goblin flying machine. So if you think to the gyrocopter of the dwarfs, think of something like that, but made really shoddily by a goblin and it, it buzzes around and causes nonsense on the battlefield. Really good model, actually. I highly recommend it, uh, even if you're not playing Kings of War as a proxy for something in Warhammer Fantasy. The other uh, last thing I'm going to mention is the goblin slasher. This is kind of cool. It's imagine a couple of goblins on a carnosaur with a bolt thrower on top and you've got the goblin slasher. Really, really cool model for Mantic, that one. Next up is Night Stalkers. Now, the Night Stalkers are interesting. They're relatives of the Abyssals in terms of they both kind of come out of hell where the Abyssals are your classic kind of demons with horns red skin you know pitchforks that kind of stuff night stalkers are your nightmares they are your freddy kruegers they are the things that exist because you dream them into existence with your twisted imagination and now they have come to to haunt you really like them they got some really really cool models in their range and they have almost a cosmic horror vibe to them with some of their stuff like the mind screech is kind of this floating one-eyed tentacle monster thing kind of almost a little bit like a beholder from warhammer or from dungeons and dragons but more gribbly it's a range i like a lot i think you can do so much with them it's really really cool and then there were orcs and orcs are very much the orcs that you know and love from warhammer fantasy minus their goblin buddies they're very simple but they're pretty good. Their range, again, is one of the older ones, but they actually just came out with a new range of slightly different orcs that look really, really good. My favorite thing from the orc list is the fight wagons. 
so these are chariots that the orcs have kind of turned around. So they the the beasts that would pull a normal chariot now push it. And the orcs stand in front. So think of, yeah, you hitch up you hitch up your animals backwards to a chariot, then you stand in front of it because you want to be the one to impact the enemy instead of having the animals impact the enemy. And that is a fight wagon. I just love that as a very orky idea. The orcs in Kings of War are a little bit more sinister than they are in Warhammer Fantasy. They're a little bit more organized. They're a little bit smarter. And because of that, they've got a bit more of a sinister vibe. And you get these, the sense that like they're just a little bit nastier, right? A little less comedy. And I believe finally we have the undead. The undead, I think, might be the most popular army in Mantic's range. And Mantic's undead look pretty good. There's some questionable units in there, but there's also some real great ones. And if you've seen anything proxied in Warhammer Fantasy, you've probably seen undead, uh, Mantic's undead range. Again, they have pretty much everything here that you might want. It has a feeling more of the classic fourth ed undead than necessarily vampire counts. You could really do a little bit of either because they, they do have things like mummies in here, which is great. And they also have things that Warhammer Fantasy just never really got into too much. So things like werewolves and zombie trolls. It's a very, very cool list. I think if you're looking for a game where you can have a lot of fun modeling an undead army, you could do worse than Kings of War. So that covers pretty much everything in the rulebook there. Kings of War is a great game for anyone who wants to have Warhammer Fantasy dialed out. If you want a quicker to play Warhammer Fantasy or if you want to play bigger games of Warhammer Fantasy, if you want to get past that like 3000 point range where Warhammer Fantasy takes all day to play, you can play Kings of War with the same model counts in probably half the time. It's dialed out, it's dialed back. You're not going to get that same granularity. You might not get those all of those same cinematic moments where something absolutely dumb and wonderful happens but you could still have a really good time and if you're looking for a balanced game if that's your jam i mean you should probably be playing kings of war anyway from instead of warhammer fantasy the kings of war line has even increased since then uh there's way more factions than i listed here i only missed listed the ones that you'll get in the main rulebook there's also uncharted empires as well as uh, their Clash of Kings books that come out and I believe add new stuff to the game. They just added a new faction of orcs called the Riftforge orcs that look really, really good. They're Think of a, a whole army of black orcs, but with kind of a Warcrafty aesthetic, like World of Warcraft. If that speaks to you, then I think you'll like that really, you'll like that a lot. I really like them. They have a, a unit of Manticore riding orcs that I think just looks super cool. Mantic has come such a long way with their technology and their designs. They're just really, really good now. The other army that they came out with very recently were halflings. You can get whole armies of halflings, and uh, they have like kind of friend trolls that they will ride around on. And if you want to see a great illustration of the difference between old Mantic models and new Mantic models. Look at the goblin trolls and then look at the forest trolls for the halflings. And uh, 
it's just night and day. Night and day better. But the halflings have some really cool units as well. They have an iron beast, which is just kind of like this built giant pig contraption. Like a steam tank mixed with a boar that the halflings ride on. Very, very cool stuff. They also have dog cavalry. And if you don't like dog cavalry, I just, I can't help you. I really can't help you. Their hero is on a winged dog called an Arales. And he's just the goodest boy. And he's got him dog armor on. And he's super cute. So I guess play Kings of War and get yourself some halflings for the dogs. Uh, but it's, it's a great range. I think the halfling range might be better than the Riftforge Orcs range. And the thing is, with a game like this, if nothing in the Mantic range speaks to you, you can still play the game just as well with your Warhammer collection or whatever ministries you want to buy. And that is one of the absolute strengths of this game and this system. I really do recommend checking it out for anyone who's into those larger games, who wants to play a game that plays quicker who wants a faction that maybe Warhammer doesn't provide, or you just want to change. Sometimes a change is as good as break. All right, I think that's going to about do it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great week. <laughs>